John Ziegler here. Excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 88. Of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective. Because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast are most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. When we last spoke on episode number 87, I was telling you that it was time... For Democrats to panic, uh, and, and not just Democrats, but anyone who does not want to see Donald Trump reelected to a second term to the presidency of the United States. And then, in fact, it might be too late to panic. Uh, I am someone who believes that the presidential elections are very much like aircraft carriers. They are very difficult to turn around once they get pointed in a particular direction, that momentum seems to carry them that way. And that the lessons of 2016, where Donald Trump was not taken seriously enough, needed to be learned, especially when it came to the emerging candidacy of Bernie Sanders. And uh, wow, uh, I got to tell you. Boy, that escalated quickly. Yeah, because we have gone from a situation in a couple of weeks where things looked pretty decent. At least I thought they looked pretty decent. That uh, Joe Biden was going to have some bumpy times, but it, it looked pretty uh, optimistic, or at least I was pretty optimistic, that he would be able to survive the early going and that through a war of attrition, reasonability and rationality would win out and that he would eventually win the nomination. I wasn't sure if he would be too bloodied to still then beat Donald Trump and that it was probably going to be a close general election. But simply because, and this is the most mind-boggling part of this, simply because of a few thousand votes in Iowa and New Hampshire, Bernie Sanders, who, who is underperforming dramatically what he did in 2016, dramatically underperforming. Correct. Uh, and he's also underperforming the polls. This is what's so mind-blowing. So a guy who is 78 years old, <laughs> just had a heart attack, is underperforming his 2016 numbers by about, give or take, 50%. Now, I realize there are more candidates, but he was going up against Hillary Clinton, a horrendous candidate in 2016, and I still believe that a huge portion of the Bernie Sanders vote from 2016 was simply people that didn't like Hillary or wanted some excitement in the race, didn't want it to be handed to her. And Sanders is doing way worse than that uh, pace as far as actual vote totals in the first two primaries. And he's also underperforming 
what the polling is. And he barely, I mean, if he won Iowa, no one knows who won Iowa, but supposedly he won the popular vote by a few thousand votes. And the same thing in New Hampshire. He barely won both. Barely. So he's, <laughs> in a rational world, he is limping through the first couple of uh, primaries in comparison to what you might expect on his 2016 performance. And yet he has gone from someone who was in second or third place, significantly behind Joe Biden nationally, to now someone who is the prohibitive frontrunner, the prohibitive favorite. In the last couple of days, there have been so many polls out, both statewide and national, and I continue to, to, to tell you that the national polls are virtually irrelevant uh, from the standpoint of who's going to end up beating Donald Trump. Because the general election against Donald Trump is going to be completely different, especially for Bernie Sanders, who most people do not know is a Democratic Socialist and is not a member of the Democratic Party. They probably don't even know he's 78 years old and just had a heart attack. That's one of the basic realities of American politics in 2020. The average voter is a moron. Correct. That's the reality of American life. I love the poorly educated. And so we presume, and I've written about this at Mediate, I hope you check out, and for the New York Post, which picked up the, uh, the column, bizarrely, uh, which you can read at our Twitter handle, which is at Individual1Pod. I have written extensively about this incredibly important issue that the polls are misleading people as to who is the best candidate to take on Donald Trump. But as far as the national Democratic polls, they are relevant because it indicates momentum and it indicates how candidates will do in certain states for the national primary contest. So those numbers are still relevant, but it doesn't matter which numbers you pick. In the last few days, it has been astonishing. I've been watching politics my entire life, since I was nine years old, very closely. I, I've been a poll watcher for, for over uh, 40 years, and I've never seen, based upon so little, someone make such a dramatic move in comparison to their competition than Bernie Sanders has. Now, let's be clear about why this is happening. Yes, Sanders has picked up support because of the momentum generated from these two incredibly narrow victories. But a large part of this is that while his numbers have gone up slightly, his competitors have gone down rather significantly. And uh, there are two main causes for this. Number one is that Elizabeth Warren got wiped out in, in New Hampshire. Uh, in, in all uh, respects, it was a disaster for her. And she should have been, by any historical measure, laughed out of the race at that point. When you get 9% and finish a week fourth place in a state, New Hampshire, which is literally, literally part of your hometown media market, which is Boston, Massachusetts. She's a senator from, from, from Massachusetts. And the idea that uh, you can get away with getting 9% and finishing a week fourth in New Hampshire, which is way worse than any other major New Hampshire candidate has ever done in the New Hampshire primary from either party. And there have been many, I mean, almost every year, someone from Massachusetts runs in a New Hampshire primary. No one has ever done as poorly as Elizabeth Warren. So she has lost approximately, or thereabouts, about half of her support. And it appears as if almost all of that has gone to Bernie Sanders. So that accounts for his increase in support. But the reason why he is now leading both statewide, specifically in Nevada, which is next up, and here in California, which is just around the corner and has a huge treasure trove of delegates where Sanders, unless something happens, is set to pick up a ton of them and take a massive delegate lead, uh, but uh, also nationwide. The reason why his lead is increasing now is because Joe Biden's numbers have gone down and Joe Biden's numbers have gone down largely because of Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg has now bought himself a place in this race where his numbers nationally are basically the same as Joe Biden's. 
They're in the same ballpark, maybe a little bit ahead of Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. And Pete Buttigieg has suddenly uh, almost fallen off the map nationally, which is weird, considering he almost won Iowa, uh, came in a very strong second in New Hampshire. It's almost as if voters found something out about Pete Buttigieg. I wonder what that might have been. I wonder what they might have found out about Pete Buttigieg after reading beyond the, the first line in his biography. Hmm. I, I've been suggesting for a very long time that while he's a seemingly a good guy, smart guy, might even make a good president, but as a 38-year-old, unemployed, former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who's married to a man, he's not the guy you want to send up to Donald, against Donald Trump in the Roman Coliseum. You're not going to send that guy to the Lions because he doesn't have a lot to defend himself. And this is for keeps. You can't screw this up. And it appears as if, weirdly, I mean, just think about how insane this is. I mean, if Buttigieg gets just a couple thousand more votes in Iowa and New Hampshire, he wins both of those races. And does he get the momentum? that uh, Bernie Sanders currently has, it just is an incredible testament to the power of winning. Winning is so incredibly important, especially in this day and age when all people get is a headline. There's no context. There, there's no, there are no, no details. It's just who won, who lost. That's it. And because Bernie Sanders got the W, now all of a sudden he's got all the momentum and everyone, not everyone, but about uh, a, a, almost a third of the Democratic Party appears to be jumping on his bandwagon. Meanwhile, Pete Buttigieg, his momentum appears to be completely gone. And as far as momentum goes, Amy Klobuchar, who I have been uh, touting over the last several weeks as the last best hope for Democrats to beat Trump, barring another miracle... I mean, she already pulled off a minor miracle in New Hampshire, but barring a minor miracle in Nevada, I think she's done. She's done, and the reason why she's done is because there are too many people in her lane, including Elizabeth Warren. And I've taken a lot of heat online uh, for this because I have said consistently that Elizabeth Warren needed to drop out immediately after New Hampshire, as did Joe Biden who I have been promoting for almost a year as the best chance to beat Donald Trump. But for reasons that I've explained previously, that's probably no longer the case. And they got to get him out of there. This is the seventh game of the World Series. He's throwing 77 miles per hour. Get him off the mound. He's going to get killed. You, you got someone in the bullpen who throws a lot better. Amy Klobuchar, much better candidate against Trump, only because of the fact that she's not 100 years old. And, and because she's a woman and because she's geographically very well positioned to beat Trump and a whole lot of other reasons. But logic isn't going to win this thing. That's become abundantly clear. And Klobuchar, while she raised a, a whole hell of a lot of money off of her strong third place finish in New Hampshire, uh, is, is seeing none of that uh, translate into support in Nevada or nationwide, the Super Tuesday states, which are right around the corner here in California, or South Carolina. So that momentum, barring a miracle in Nevada, and tonight's debate is going to be huge. Oh boy, boy, tonight's debate is going to be lit. I, I can never recall, and I'll get to this momentarily, a debate which is more certain to have fireworks than tonight's Democratic presidential debate uh, in Nevada. But if, if Amy Klobuchar does not pull off a second miracle in Nevada— She's done because Biden ain't going to get out of the race until at least South Carolina and Warren isn't going to get out of the race either. The news media is not forcing her out because they like her. The news media is essentially Elizabeth Warren's base. And I've seen a lot of uh, of her supporters complaining that that she hasn't gotten enough media attention since New Hampshire. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> she should be out of the race. She, there, it is, there is no argument after you get 9% in your, your essentially home state and finish a week fourth. You're in the way. And, I, and a lot of people have disagreed with me on uh, this issue of who gets helped if Warren uh, were to get out of the race, as she should have. I get that philosophically, politically, she's more aligned with Bernie Sanders and therefore 
you would think that a lot of her support would go to Sanders. And wouldn't Warren getting out help Sanders more? And I have said consistently that a, a, a viable Warren is important to keep Bernie Sanders in check. But here's the deal. Most of that damage has now already been done. The people that have left Warren are the ones that left because of ideological reasons. They're the essentially the socialists. So they're already gone. The people that are with her are with her because of personality and gender. And those that are with her now, I believe, would be far more likely to go to Amy Klobuchar. And regardless of whether they directly went to Klobuchar or not, there is zero doubt that if in theory, and this is why I wrote the moment, the even before the New Hampshire results were completely uh, public, I wrote a column saying Biden and Warren have to get out in order to give Klobuchar a shot. And, the, and part of that rationale was if Warren's out, that leaves Klobuchar as the last female. And being the last female, especially with, without a minority candidate in the running, that would be incredibly powerful for her candidacy. I mean, we're talking about an extremely woke Democratic base, post-Me Too. You mean to tell me that with five or six candidates left and one female, and she's viable, and she's qualified, and she's compelling, she's not going to get at least 20 or 30 percent of the vote right off the bat? If, if, she, if, if she has that status as the last female? I, I firmly believe that. But I don't think she's going to get that shot because there's nothing really forcing Warren out of the race. And, you know, there's a very good chance Warren's actually going to beat Klobuchar in Nevada, which then destroys whatever argument there was for Klobuchar to get. I mean, for for Warren to get out. As I said, Biden's not going to get out until uh, at least South Carolina, because that's always been supposedly his firewall. I'll be surprised if that holds. If Biden were to win South Carolina, it's going to be by a very small margin uh, in all likelihood. And I don't know what value that really has, because almost immediately after South Carolina, you have huge states like California and then Super Tuesday. I mean, South Carolina in the past has always been a massive primary. This time around, I think it's going to be a blip on the radar. So Biden has put all of his chips, mainly because he has no other choice, on a situation that might not be that significant, even if it comes through for him. And so all of this is working out exactly as Donald Trump could have possibly, better than he could have possibly imagined. Correct. Uh, because one, there's chaos. And two, the wrong candidates are looking like they're going to be the nominee. And Bernie Sanders definitely has control. That doesn't mean he's going to be the nominee, by the way. I want to make it very clear. I have always been very, very skeptical that Bernie Sanders was actually going to be the Democratic nominee, and I still have skepticism. He is still stoppable. He still has huge, huge baggage, if only because of the fact that he's 78 years old and just had a heart attack. Just this morning, one of his surrogates went on CNN and tried to explain his lack of medical records being produced as somehow being akin to birtherism. Birtherism? Really? You cannot be serious! I mean, that was a dumb phrase to be using in a Democratic primary because obviously a birtherism is something that Donald Trump levied against Barack Obama, supposedly because he wasn't born in this country when in fact he actually was. So, so when you go to birtherism to try to explain why you have not released your medical records when you said that you would, when you've just had a heart attack, that's an issue. However, I don't know that it's fatal because we, using Trump as the example, I mean, my gosh, Trump is the guy whose entire candidacy in 2016 was based in the concept of his allegedly great business career, which was totally a, a fraudulent narrative. It's bogus. It was the exact opposite of that. Uh, but that was the basis of his candidacy. And yet he refused to release his tax returns, which massive majorities of the public said that he should do, even after he promised to do so, even after he was elected. To this day, he's still using extreme legal recourses to prevent his his tax returns from being made public. It's, it's an obvious cover-up of something. I don't know what. Maybe he's just not that rich, but maybe it's much worse than that. But somehow he's gotten away with that. So in my 
logical mind. I realize Democrats are different than Republicans, but they might not be fundamentally different. It's amazing how similar the Sanders candidacy is to what happened with Trump in 2016. I doubt that Sanders is going to be held accountable, certainly not by his cult, which is very similar to the Trump cult. I love the poorly educated. He's not going to be held accountable for not releasing his medical records, just like Trump was not held accountable for not releasing his tax returns. And people see medical records as being far more personal than even your tax returns. So I'm not sure that's going to work. Uh, I mean, there are some things that could work against Sanders, but you would have to be willing to take him out and it would take extraordinary measures. And here's the big problem to do what it would take to get rid of Sanders especially now that he has momentum, especially now that he is essentially one uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, and it looks like he's going to win Nevada, maybe handily. It's too late. It's, it's too late to do it cleanly. It's too late to do it safely. You cannot take Bernie Sanders out now that his people think he's going to be the nominee because you already, in their distorted minds, already did it in 2016. They think, wrongly, that they were robbed in 2016. So now you've got a massive problem. It's, it, I've referred to this as uh, the Chinese finger trap problem. You know, a, a Chinese finger trap, when you try to get out of it, the harder you try, the more trapped you get. Well, that's going to be the problem with the Bernie people. The harder it looks like the quote-unquote Democratic establishment is trying to take out Bernie Sanders, the more dangerous he becomes. Because now his people are going to be pissed. They're so pissed, not only will they not uh, vote for the Democratic candidate, these people are, 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 are psychologically, many of them, they are the type of people who might even vote for Trump because they're anti-establishment and they're populists. And it's not that much of a leap to go from the Sanders cult to the Trump cult, especially when you're pissed off at whoever the Democratic nominee is because you think they stole it from your guy. And guess who's fostering that narrative? Donald Trump is fostering that narrative. Correct. Why? Because he's smart enough or people around him are smart enough to understand that this is the real gold of the Sanders candidacy for Trump. It's a no lose for him. If Sanders is the nominee, he gets to run against a goddamn socialist who's 78 years old and just had a heart attack and who wasn't even a member of the Democratic Party. But if Sanders loses, it's almost as good for him. Because if Sanders loses, now you have a huge chunk of the Democratic Party pissed off in a huge way that either he can appeal to or they'll stay home. Or Sanders might end up running as a third party candidate. Now, there's legal issues involved in that. But if if Michael Bloomberg and I'll get, I'm going to get the Bloomberg here shortly, if Michael Bloomberg ends up defeating Bernie Sanders for the Democratic presidential nomination after he won the first three contests and was leading in all the polls and he buys it, he, he essentially a billionaire buys the Democratic nomination, former Republican, uh, who, he buys it, stealing it away from Bernie Sanders? I'm sorry. Somebody's running in a, as a third party. Somebody is running as a third party candidate, and that is going to ensure Trump's victory with 100% certainty. Correct. Because you cannot beat Trump, who has a rock solid 44, 45% in a three-person race where I don't even care if it's only 10 to 15%, but if, if only 10% of the nut job left decides to vote for somebody else, that means Trump wins probably in a landslide because that's how small, small the margins are. So this Bernie Sanders problem is not just what if Bernie wins. It's what if Bernie loses now that his people think that he's going to win. And this is why I was trying to press the panic button early, because you can't let this snowball start to go down the mountain. And the idea that the person that's going to stop the snowball is Mike Bloomberg is 
uh, borderline hilarious. It is borderline hilarious to me uh, that Michael Bloomberg, and to speak about it, hilarious, and, and why tonight's debate is going to be unbelievable. I mean, this is going to be unbelievable because just today, the Bloomberg people, talking about who should drop out and who should stay in, the Bloomberg campaign released a statement urging Klobuchar, Biden, and Buttigieg to drop out of the race so that he, so that he could have the so-called moderate lane to go after Bernie Sanders, win the nomination, and beat Donald Trump. Really? Really? It's just flat out ridiculous. Hold on a second here. This is a guy, let's review, was elected multiple times as a Republican mayor in New York City. Now, he was a very liberal Republican, but he was a Republican. He went to the 2004 Republican National Convention and publicly spoke. It's There's video of it. And endorsed George W. Bush for president. Right there, uh, that ought to disqualify him from ever being the Democratic presidential nominee. And I'm somebody who strongly supported George W. Bush in 2004. That's that's worse than Bernie Sanders not being a part of the Democratic Party, in in my opinion, although you could argue it either way. But so that's the background. Then you have a guy who doesn't even enter the first two contests, has not been on a ballot yet, has not been in a debate yet. There's been like a thousand debates. Not one has included Michael Bloomberg. And before you're even in one debate, before you even technically gotten one vote, you're claiming that other people ought to drop out? Really? You cannot be serious. But wow, can you imagine the fireworks that are going to go off tonight at this debate? Not just because of that. I mean, you've got this, the Bernie Sanders uh, birtherism medical records thing, and you've got Bloomberg urging other people who have been in the race for a, over a year who've actually won votes and are, and won delegates and have significant support nationwide, him telling them to drop out. And, and the other part of why this debate is going to be incredibly electric tonight is because I think now, finally, belatedly, these candidates are going to realize what I have been shouting about for weeks. It's now or never. It might be beyond now or never. So when you get a situation where you have this many people who now realize, holy crap, this is this is we're at the, the point of no return now. This is this is not just for me. Also, this is the added reason why it's going to be so combustible tonight, because usually in a, in a normal year, it's really just about the candidate and the people that work for their campaign and whether or not they're going to go down in history as a failed presidential candidate or maybe potentially be the the nominee of the party. And so it, it really only matters to them personally. But in this situation, the stakes are exponentially higher because in their minds, and I agree with them, this is about the fate of the country. This is about whether or not Donald Trump is going to get a second term in office. And so when you have all these people who have both a self-interest in making sure that their candidacies don't end, and they also believe that the fate of the nation relies on, if not them being the nominee, at the very least, Bernie Sanders not being the nominee. And then this what has to be a, a, an enormous amount of personal animosity towards Michael Bloomberg for having the audacity. I mean, the audacity. Talk about, I mean, my gosh. I mean, celebrities have egos and super rich people have egos. But the ego that having whatever it is, $60 billion that Michael Bloomberg has must really be something for you to believe that you can just step in and say, hey, I'm here. Uh, everyone else get out so that I can win is just astonishing. And Bloomberg is actually doing, in my view, the exact opposite of what he thinks he's doing or what he appears to think that he's doing. He appears to think that he is the savior here, that no one else can get this job done of beating Donald Trump. And now I think he believes he's the only person that can beat Bernie Sanders. And I am now very open to the idea that this could end up being fairly easily a Sanders versus Bloomberg race, which is just mind blowing. I'm not I'm not discounting the idea that Joe Biden gets 
part of that if he finishes second in Nevada, which he might, and wins in South Carolina, which he might. That probably keeps him in for the duration. And you end up with a a Bloomberg, Biden, uh, Sanders race, which I have no idea how that turns out. Uh, But, you know, that's that's best case scenario for Joe Biden. He's in a in a three person, maybe four person, bloody march to the convention and then somehow survives. That is still a theoretical possibility if everything uh, goes right. Whether he still beats Donald Trump after surviving that, I have no idea. I have my doubts. But I'm also open to this idea that everyone else is forced to drop out because Bloomberg has now sucked up all the oxygen. He's literally sucked up all the television ad space. And part of why he is doing the exact opposite of what he thinks he's doing is that he is reducing everyone else's ability to take out Sanders. Because Sanders, with this many candidates, this this divided, can win primaries and caucuses fairly easily with only 25, 30 percent of the vote. And, and that might be Sanders' cap. Sanders' ceiling, except in a two-person race, which I'll get to momentarily, Sanders' ceiling in a three- or four-person race raises probably 25 percent, maybe 30 in the states that are, are conducive to him. Obviously, other than Northeast, like Vermont, where he, you know he's from, or uh, you know that kind of thing, but uh, but the reality is the states that matter, he's pretty much capped out. Well, in this kind of a situation, that can win, and that can win pretty easily and pile up delegates super fast. And so Bloomberg, by reducing the support of people like Joe Biden and keeping. Amy Klobuchar at bay. I believe that because Bloomberg came in, all the people who would have theoretically given Klobuchar another look got more excited about Bloomberg because they're seeing all these ads. They know he has all this money. He's throwing bombs and he's getting very kid glove media attention, which is not a coincidence because there is a massive, and I, I will say this in every podcast until he's I pledge to say this in every podcast until Bloomberg is not in the race. There is a massive, massive conflict of interest when it comes to Michael Bloomberg and news media coverage. Because Michael Bloomberg is literally, literally paying the salaries of the people who are covering him. Not just Bloomberg News, which is a real thing, but other news media outlets because he is spending millions and millions and millions of dollars directly to those very same media outlets. And I'm not suggesting it's a conspiracy. It's just people acting in their own self-interest. No one in the media wants to kill this golden goose because this is free, unexpected, unbudgeted money that they don't have to work for. It's just handed right to them. And speaking of those commercials, I think that the moment, the moment when this is all said and done, assuming this turns into the disaster that it appears it's going to, the moment that is going to be most pivotal, that is most stupefying, that has gotten no attention in the media that I have seen, which is um, just astonishing, is the moment that Michael Bloomberg started running a television ad where it appears as if Barack Obama is endorsing him. He uses clips from Barack Obama from like six, seven years ago, where Michael Bloomberg is the mayor of New York, and Obama is saying all sorts of nice things about him. And through pictures and audio, it makes it seem as if Obama has endorsed Bloomberg. And the first moment I saw this ad, I'm going, what the living hell is this? What, where is Obama saying, knock it the hell off? Because that's all it would take. All it would take is one tweet from Barack Obama saying, hey, Mike, uh, knock it off. I didn't endorse you. And Bloomberg would either have to pull the ad or he would get destroyed in a Democratic primary because you can't do that. Uh, to Barack Obama. Barack Obama doesn't have full control, uh, but he's got a lot of control. And that's something Bloomberg could not have endured. Instead, total silence, total silence to this day, as far as I'm aware, 
from Barack Obama or anyone even close to him about this ad. And I even completely unprovoked. I've gotten multiple messages from people who tell me that in the black community, they think Obama endorsed Bloomberg because of that commercial. That That is unbelievable, especially when Obama's former vice president, Joe Biden, is counting on the black vote to carry him uh, through South Carolina and into Super Tuesday and has specifically said publicly he doesn't want Barack Obama into the race and endorsing him because he doesn't want Obama seen as putting his finger on the scales. Well, and how the Biden campaign didn't go apoplectic over this commercial is also a complete mystery to me. I really do believe that at the heart of a lot of this is even those in politics, those in these campaigns have no idea just how dumb the voters really are. I love the poorly educated. They don't understand it. They don't understand that seeing a commercial where Michael Bloomberg is with Barack Obama and Obama is saying nice things to him, even though it says, I've looked at the commercial many times, it says in the upper left-hand corner, 1994, I mean, I'm sorry, 2014, 2014, even though it says 2014, People don't look at that. No one's looking at this as carefully as I do. <laughs> they, they just look at it and go, oh, wow, Obama must have endorsed uh, Bloomberg. If it's good enough for Obama, good enough for me, especially since there's no black people in the race. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I like Obama, and uh, Bloomberg seems like he knows what he's doing. I, so that wipes out Joe's support, which and, and Joe Biden was by far the best opportunity and still is. If you look at the head-to-head matchups, he's still the best option, theoretically, to beat Donald Trump in a general election. And his head-to-head matchup numbers mean a hell of a lot more than anybody else's because guess what? Virtually 100% of the American public knows who Joe Biden is. He was vice president for eight years. He's been in the Senate for a million years. So there, there is no issue with Biden like there is with Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, who's also been around for a million years and has created the misperception of being vetted because of his 2016 run where there was no vetting because he was not taken seriously. No one thought he was, had any chance of winning. But now the media has fallen into this, too. They think that the public already knows who Bernie Sanders is. No, they don't. The actual people who vote in a general election have no idea who Bernie Sanders is. And when Trump destroys him with socialism and not being a part of the Democratic Party and being 78 years old and having had a heart attack, and it'll be hilarious when he does this, given his own personal history, but Trump is going to rip him for not uh, releasing his medical records. And, and he's from Vermont, which is barely part of the United States of America. It's basically part of Canada. It's going to be horrendous. And you know how it's going to, you know why? Here's the proof it's going to be horrendous. Here Bernie Sanders is, all of a sudden has all this momentum. He's now the front runner. Doesn't mean he's going to win, but he's the front runner. And where are the congressional Democrats surging to endorse him publicly? It doesn't exist. To my knowledge, there's been no major Democrats of any sort who are elected who have said, you know what, let me get on this bandwagon. None. That's unheard of in politics. If someone is going to be the front runner to be your nominee, there's always going to be some bandwagon effect among elected people in your party because they want to be the first ones in. They want to be able to get favor with that person because if they're going to be the nominee, that's going to come with a lot of power. Well, that hasn't happened. And the reason why that hasn't happened is because those who are elected Democrats know, oh, shit. This is going to be bad. This is going to be bad for all of us. This is going to be bad for beating Trump. This is going to be bad for us down ticket. This is going to be bad for us in the Congress. This is going to be bad for us in the Senate because they know because they've been in their districts and their states and they know that while America is heading towards socialism, it's not heading there as fast as they would have hoped. 
since they're liberal Democrats, and it's not there yet, and especially not against an incumbent president during a time of peace and prosperity. If we're going to go socialist officially, which I believe if I live long enough, we probably will in my lifetime, it's going to be during an economic depression or recession. That's when we're vulnerable to socialism. Hell, that's how FDR happened in the 1930s and 40s. You, you don't get a, a leap to socialism uh, with someone who openly calls themselves a democratic socialist when the economy is perceived as good, especially with an incumbent president with all the power of incumbency at his fingertips and being more than willing to use it. So all of this is heading uh, in the negative direction if your goal is to beat uh, Donald Trump. And I'll be very clear. I mean, while I would like things to see how things uh, shook out and I'd want to know who the vice presidential candidate is and I'd, li- I'd like to know some of the things that Trump does between he- then and uh, here and now and then uh, I got to tell you if Bernie Sanders is the nominee not that my vote matters here in California I would never vote for Bernie Sanders and I might even and not that it matters in California but I would probably be rooting for Donald Trump to win that race as insane as that is as insane as that is for someone who, who actually does a podcast devoted to a critical look at Donald Trump, even I could see myself publicly supporting Donald Trump against Bernie Sanders for reasons that uh, if it gets to that, I'll explain later. And I haven't made that uh, decision uh, with any finality, but that's where I would be leading right now. That's how much I would fear Bernie Sanders. Because I think Sanders and Trump are cut from the same damn cloth. It's just that Sanders is a socialist and Trump is at least partially a capitalist. Other than that, there's not that much difference. Uh, They're both cult leaders uh, and they're both egomaniacs. They're both narcissists. They're both liars. uh, They're both old. I mean, they're, they're, they're incredibly similar. Correct. But uh, but you know what? If, If I have to hang on to something, at least let me hang on to not being a socialist. And I'm not alone in that. There are going to be a lot of other people who you're going to if, if Sanders is the candidate, not that this is necessarily the reason why he shouldn't be the Democratic nominee, although it should be a factor. If Sanders is the nominee, Democrats will lose every single, every single disaffected Republican, every single one, every single Republican who ever ever thought about either not voting for Trump or voting for his opponent will not only not vote for the Democrat, they will actually be, uh, I believe, motivated to vote for Donald Trump, even if they hate his guts. That's that's how toxic uh, Bernie Sanders is to people who are of my ilk. Now, again, people of my ilk are pretty small number, unfortunately. <laughs> Sometimes it seems like an incredibly small number, but we could matter in several key states. And that doesn't even begin to talk about Uh, independent voters or conservative Democrats. There are still a few of those out there, especially in key states like Pennsylvania, like Wisconsin, like Michigan. So, uh, so far, this is all going exactly uh, as as the best possible scenario that Donald Trump could could have ever wanted. And tonight's debate in Nevada should be uh, must watch television. I, 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 I would be stunned I would be stunned if there is not blood on the floor at the end of that debate. If there isn't, then you know what? Democrats just don't get it, and they're just going to let this thing ride out, and it's going to go right into Donald Trump's direction, and it's going to lead to his uh, re-election and second term in office. Because, as I've been saying numerous times, it might already be on the point of no return, But we are definitely there because if Bernie Sanders and Michael Bloomberg are are who this race is left to, which is what we're very close to, unless they get taken out tonight in this Nevada debate, unless that happens, uh, there are no scenarios where this is good. If Sanders is the nominee, he gets beat by Trump because people find out he's a socialist. If Bloomberg is the nominee, the left goes absolutely bananas. There's a third party run or at the very least 
there's a bloody civil war within the Democratic Party and Trump laughs his way all the way to a second term. Correct. Um, now, that doesn't mean that this is set in stone. I'm still I am a delusional optimist when it comes to holding on to hope. And I'm hoping uh, for something miraculous to happen in the debate tonight in Nevada. Now, as far as Trump is concerned himself, there's been a lot of talk over the last few days about Bill Barr, the attorney general, who whom I despise and who I see as actually more dangerous than Donald Trump, possibly resigning as attorney general, largely because of all of the reaction to this very bizarre and corrupt situation involving Roger Stone, Donald Trump's close friend, and his sentencing on federal charges, including perjury and other uh, very serious charges where it was initially recommended that he get seven to nine years in prison. Trump tweeted that that was ridiculous. And then shockingly, the very next day, the DOJ backed away from that recommendation. The four prosecutors in the case all resigned in a rational world. This is a situation that would have required the attorney general to resign himself, if only for his own dignity and his own ability to do his job, but we no longer live in that world. There have been numerous calls for Bill Barr to resign, including a letter signed by over uh, 1,000 different prosecutors from uh, both sides of the political aisle. And there was an article uh, late last night, a couple of them actually, indicating that Barr had actually considered uh, resigning over all of this. And because Trump's tweeting, which he has publicly stated, has put him in a very, very difficult position, uh, that uh, he would actually resign from his office. Now, I did not buy that story at all. One, because I don't think it's in Barr's DNA to give up the power. Uh, Trump wouldn't want it to happen. But more importantly than that, that's not the way a story like this would occur. If Bill Barr was going to resign, he would just resign. He would say, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I've reached my limit. Uh, This is over the line. I can't do the job properly, thanks to Trump. I'm resigning. The only reason why you leak through friends that you're considering resigning is that you're not actually going to resign. Correct. And you just want to send a strategic signal. Correct. That's what's happening here. It's very obvious to anyone with a functioning brain. And, of course, last night... Uh, the DOJ put out a, a very strange statement saying that at this time, Bill Barr is not considering resigning from office, despite what the report said. Well, he, he's not going to resign uh, based upon the current fact pattern. That's not going to happen. Uh, one of those who has said that he should resign is a guy who, in a rational world, would have a lot of clout here or a lot of credibility. His name is Donald Iyer. He's the former deputy attorney general under George Herbert Walker Bush. By the way, that's an administration for which Bill Barr worked. And here was our on CNN explaining that he's not actually that surprised by Bill Barr's incredibly king-like, monarchy-like view of the presidency. And it's just now with Donald Trump as president that Barr has had the opportunity to see his philosophical dreams to come to fruition. And here's what he said a couple of days ago. I don't know that he's changed because he's always had a very strong view that the executive ought to have a great deal of power. I've never known quite how far it would go. And there was never any reason to test it because when he was attorney general under George H.W. Bush, George H.W. Bush had no interest in being an autocrat. So now we're faced with a situation where Bill Barr has won the job of attorney general under a president who apparently does want to be an autocrat. Now, the reason that I say he's un-American is because I think it's fair to say, and I think most people would agree with me, that the central tenet of our legal system and our justice system is that no person is above the law. Um, We have a a government, as as Edward Levy said back when he really reformed the Justice Department after Watergate, uh, it's a government of laws and not men was the word he used. Um, and, And Bill Barr's vision is quite different. Bill Barr's vision is that there is one man one person who needs to be above the law, and that is the president. And he's carried that out. This is the really important thing. He said that before he became attorney general, but he's now carried it out in many steps since he became What did you think of what he said in that ABC News interview last week when he urged the president to stop tweeting 
because that's interfering in the Justice Department's legal actions. Well, I think I think that was an effort, essentially, so that he would maybe encourage the president. I don't know if he expected it to happen, and that sounds like it's not going to. Uh, but maybe he hoped the government wouldn't blow his cover. He didn't say anything about stopping doing the things that he was doing. He didn't say that he was going to stop interfering in criminal cases that had been handled in a, a usual and ordinary way. Um, he didn't say that he was going to stop pursuing these lawsuits to defend the stonewalling against efforts of Congress to perform their traditional oversight functions. Um, he didn't say that they were going to stop litigating the case uh, involving the border wall where the president has put out a phony emergency declaration to avoid the appropriation power of the House, which denied the money for the border wall. They're litigating everything they can to give the president virtually unchecked powers. And that's Bill's vision of, and it really, I think, always has been his vision. He's just never been able to try to realize it the way he is now. Amen. Uh, nothing I can really add to that other than its significance and its importance, because without Bill Barr, Donald Trump's presidency would be in far worse shape right now. Uh, but he now has his Roy Cohn, as he has said uh, many times in the past. He now has an attorney general willing to do his bidding for him, to make him the king that he's always wanted to be. And uh, it is amazing when the story of all this is written, the history is written, the confirmation of Bill Barr with hardly, I mean, there was some outcry on the left, but the, the outcry on the left was, was minimal. But the, the firing of Jeff Sessions, which I have said many, many, many times before, just after the election, the day after the midterm election, which had nothing to do with Jeff Sessions, his firing and the hiring of Bill Barr without a whole lot uh, of uproar is the moment that we left the gravitational pull of the rational earth for forever in this presidency. Because now Trump had his Roy Cohn. He had an attorney general willing to do his corrupt bidding for him because, at least in part, of this bizarre uh, philosophy that the president is above the law. And also, let's face it, Bill Barr, as I've joked many times before, was on the couch in his underwear watching Fox News Channel uh, out of out of any relevance for many years. And Trump called him off the bench. And uh, and for that, uh, Bill Barr paid a price. He sold his soul to the devil. And uh, and that's uh, to me, from a psychological standpoint, pretty obviously what happened. And Bill Barr is a very, very dangerous person, but he ain't going to resign uh, because of the very reasons we just stated. A person like that doesn't resign. He only leaks that he might resign because he's trying to send a strategic message that he somehow gets it. But as uh, as Iyer said, he doesn't get it. He's just talking about the tweeting, making making the cover up more difficult. That's all that that Barr was really concerned about. And the further proof of this, this emerging king that I continually discuss uh, about Donald Trump, and which is the, by far, to me, the most concerning element of the entire Trump crap show, is, is this issue of pardons, which just yesterday exploded once again with three very high-profile pardons of three famous criminals. The former uh, owner of the San Francisco 49ers, uh, former financier Michael Milken, and former governor of Illinois Rob... Blagojevich, uh, and, and Blago, as he is known, was the one that got the most attention, uh, largely because he's probably the most well-known person, but also because uh, Blagojevich had been on Trump's reality show, The Apprentice. Now, Trump downplayed that uh, pretty dramatically, and I, I don't think in a very credible fashion, but Blagojevich, let's be clear, there is a tape, there is a tape of him bragging about selling a U.S. Senate seat for his own personal gain. Correct. And so there, this was a, a situation where he was obviously guilty, although he has claimed time and time and time again uh, that he did nothing wrong, including yesterday. As soon as he got out of prison because of the commutation of his sentence, he said he did nothing wrong. That's just false. That's just absolutely delusional. But here was Donald Trump trying to explain his commutation of Blagojevich's sentence. And, uh, you know, if you can make sense of this, then you're a better person than me.
We have commuted the sentence of Rod Blagojevich. He served eight years in jail. It's a long time, and uh, I watched his wife on television. Uh, I don't know him very well. I met him a couple of times. He was on for a short while of The Apprentice years ago. Uh, seemed like a very nice person. Don't know him, but he uh, served eight years in jail. There's a long time to go. Many people disagree with the sentence. He's a Democrat. He's not a Republican. Uh, it was a prosecution by the same people, Comey, Fitzpatrick, the same group, uh, very far from his children. Uh, they're growing older. They're going to high school now, and they rarely get to see their father outside of an orange uniform. I saw that, and I did commute his sentence. So he'll be able to go back home with his family after serving eight years in jail. That was a tremendously powerful, ridiculous sentence, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others, yes. There's so many elements of this that are outrageous and, and frankly, comical. Uh, but, you know, the most obvious is that this is a guy who had a direct connection to Donald Trump because he was on his reality show. In a remotely rational world, that should actually disqualify the president from ever taking action to commute his sentence because that's a conflict of interest. If only an appearance of conflict of interest, which used to matter. Then there's the element of him being a celebrity that somehow in Trump's mind, if you're a celebrity and if you look at all of his pardons, all of his pardons have been related to celebrity. In fact, the only one that wasn't was recommended to him by Kim Kardashian. So so either either the person was a celebrity of some sort or they were recommended by a celebrity as if somehow that's the basis on which to determine uh, the use of your ultimate power, the pardon power, the commutation power, which is the most king-like power we give to a president. And, and then he references there, well, I saw his wife on TV. That means Fox News Channel, by the way. So, so because Fox News Channel allows the wife of Blagojevich to go on and, and whine, and by the way, also kiss Trump's ass, that happened in, as part of it. This is all very strategically done. That Everyone knows how to do this. You get on Fox News Channel and you kiss Trump's ass and you, 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 know, you plead for mercy. And if Trump's in the right mood, like a king, he's going to grant you your pardon or your commutation. And that's what happened here. This was not about justice. This was this was about a celebrity with a connection to Trump, a person who's pro-Trump. Therefore, that's far more important whether they're Democrat or Republican. That's the most important thing you can be in Trump's world. Are you pro-Trump or anti-Trump? Nothing else matters. And so this person was a celebrity. Their wife got on Fox News Channel. They were pro-Trump. And also importantly, I can stick it to Comey and his cronies. This is all about lessening the importance of, of political corruption. This is all about undermining the authority of the FBI and everyone that was related to James Comey. This was all strategically done by Donald Trump for Donald Trump. And it's also about desensitizing us to what will eventually be the Roger Stone pardon, which loops us back to the Bill Barr issue. This is all about he's eventually not all about, but eventually he's going to pardon Roger Stone, whether it's before the election or if he loses, I'm sure he'll do it just after the election. This is all about Donald Trump. This is an abuse, a, a grotesque abuse of the pardon power. And what's astonishing about this and really telling about this and scary about this is this has happened before with other presidents. Bill Clinton did it in his last day in office. Barack Obama did it. At the very end of his office, I'm sure Republican presidents have done it as well, but it seems to be getting worse over time. But nobody does this in the middle of a re-election campaign, in the middle of a re-election campaign. You cannot be serious. That shows a brazenness, an audacity, the likes of which we have never seen before, at least in the modern history of the presidency. And this goes to the biggest issue of this re-election campaign. Can you imagine what Donald Trump is going to be like in a second term? In a second term, it is going to be a shit show of epic proportions. Correct. There is no way to comprehend. If he's willing to do this in the middle of an election year, in a way that would have made any previous president embarrassed 
to pardon your your reality show buddy uh, and just because you're trying to take a shot at the FBI and for other reasons I just mentioned, it, it's that would have been incredibly politically damaging to anyone in the past. But when you think you can get away with that, and you might be right you can get away with that, in the middle of an election year, what's going to happen when you no longer have to face election, when you have no accountability to the voters, when you effectively cannot be impeached because that was already tried once and failed? God help us all. And that should be the number one issue for Democrats, whoever the nominee is, uh, in that general election. That would work, by the way, with many candidates, but I do not believe that would work with Bernie Sanders, and it might not work for Michael Bloomberg for reasons that I've already stated. Um, But that's where we are. Now, in a moment, we'll have some, some final thoughts on where this is all headed. But first, here's an interview I did with Tom Bauer, the founder of our sponsor, Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John. Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium clinical-grade full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, capsules, topical lotions and salves, and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan. Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity. But for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important? CBD is short for cannabidiol. It's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or the element, basically, that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness. Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana, and why your product is not the latter. Great, John. It's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are, are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally and descheduled all the non-THC cannabinoids. So, Essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know. You know, can, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal. Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products. But tell us, uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical products? Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products per the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just you don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at Imbue Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian. You know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well. And that website is? It's www.imbuecbd.com. That's www.imbuecbd.com. Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a new story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like backing away a little bit from CBD. What was your interpretation of what the FDA did and and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good question as well, John. And I think first and foremost, 
is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from, you know, a, basically, you know, drugs that shouldn't be there, that aren't doing what they're supposed to do, that can cause harm, and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. In, in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and and the way that, uh, you know, CBD, which is basically a kind of a, a brand new uh, thing for FDA, they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Imbue Botanicals. That's something that, that is, again, is, it goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your, your veterinarian to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. Tell us tell us why you bring more value. We are more expensive than some folks, and certainly not more expensive than others, but uh, but we're, we are a higher-priced product, and the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness. And, you know, what our folks tell us, and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to or the customers that use our product or patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're going to spend the money, they want something that works, and that's what our products do. So, Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products and, or learn more about them, where should they go? Go to our website. It's www.imbuecbd. That's www.imb, as in boy, uecbd.com, Tom, thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship. John, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it. So as I said previously, tonight's Nevada debate really is key to how this is all going to play out. Uh, Unless something dramatic happens tonight, and I do believe there will be fireworks, and it should be extremely entertaining, but unless Sanders and Bloomberg are taken down several notches, then I do believe that this whole thing is headed towards a very, very grave situation where Trump is a heavy favorite to be reelected president of the United States. That does not mean that he will be. It is quite possible, as I've said previously, that his level of support nationwide is just not quite high enough for him to get over the finish line. I personally think that it is. His his support nationwide is approximately 44 to 45 percent. If you look at all the nationwide head-to-head polling, 44 to 45 percent. Now, traditionally, that's not enough to get it done in re-election. But against a weak opponent with an electoral college advantage, I think it can get it done for Donald Trump. 42, 43, probably can't. So he's right on that edge. Is it theoretically possible that the polls are skewed more in his favor for whatever reason and that his real level of support nationwide really is 42, 43? Maybe. And if that's the case, then he could lose to almost anybody. Maybe even Bernie Sanders. I can see a path where Bernie Sanders could beat him, although I think it would be even worse for the country than a maybe even a second term for Donald Trump. So that's why there is still uncertainty here. This is absolutely, barring a miracle tonight, going in Trump's direction. But there are still scenarios where he does not win re-election. That's why I'm going to put our re-election number at only, quote-unquote, 70%, which is the highest it's ever been, way higher than it should be, way higher than I wish it would be, but that's where I currently see it, 70% chance of Donald Trump being re-elected. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter, at Individual1Pod. That's at Individual1Pod. Until next time, which should be Sunday morning, Los Angeles, California time, My name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.